Amen. Amen. Good singing, church. What a joy to sing with you once again. And what a joy it is to be gathered together on another Lord's Day. Tony and Tressa Williams, man. If every, the remaining six days of this week, everything caves in and falls down around me and there's, every bad day is a bad day, uh, just seeing you will enable me to say it was a good week. And uh, so we're just about ready for you to come on home now. And <laughs> man, Tony on the drums, man. Uh, Kenny's great. Kenny is great. Okay, Kenny's great. Man, we've, God has blessed us in the drum area. But man, what a blessing to see you guys. My heart is full. Let's read our text this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, verses 7 through 11. A great text. I think I got a word for you today. Um, man, I hope you're as ready to listen as I am as ready to preach. Because I missed last Sunday. You know, I, I was fed beautifully by Brother Justin. Pastor Justin, first sermon as an ordained elder. Man, mark it down on my calendar. Man, what a blessing. What a blessing. God is good. God is good. Is he good or what? He's good. Man, we're here together. Uh, Jesus is Lord. He is coming back, as we're going to talk about today. Uh, things are right on track. God is good. Let's read this text. Man, I'm preaching before I preach. I, uh, here we go. First Peter chapter 4, starting at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, because of that, because of that truth, therefore... Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the joy of gathering once again in the name of your Son, in the power of your spirit, sitting under your precious word to hear you speak to us. So we ask you to do that this morning in spite of the jar of clay behind this pulpit. You've given us this treasure of Jesus, this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. So that you are the one that gets all the honor and all the glory and all the thanksgiving. So, Father, please speak, for your servants are listening. Give us ears to hear and hearts to embrace everything you want to say to us today for our good and your glory. And Father, we pray once again that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together today, this morning, 
would be acceptable in your sight. Oh God, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Uh, as a way of introduction, you, uh, I need to ask a couple of questions. Number one, does everybody know what a naturalist is? A naturalist. A naturalist is someone that uh, you know, denies God. There's no supernatural. There's no miracles. Uh, faith is not an issue to the, to the naturalist. Everything is uh, scientific. Everything uh, uh, it can be explained or anything that hap- everything that happens is just basically by, by chance. There's no meaning in life, no purpose in life. Uh, everything is pretty much accidental. There's no ultimate goal. No ultimate purpose, no ultimate goal, except maybe for the selfish, uh, make my life better types of goals, which die when you die. Okay? So a naturalist. I, I know that's, that's, a, that's a brief summary. I know that falls probably short of a total definition. But a naturalist, as opposed to a Christian, as opposed to a, a person of faith, a, a believer, a saved person, uh, a supernatural. We believe in the supernatural. We believe in God. We believe in a supernatural God who is holy and righteous and perfect and loving and kind and gracious and merciful and patient and steadfast, who sent his only begotten son to die for our sin, to deliver us, to save us, to rescue us, and is coming back again to set up his kingdom, to consummate his eternal kingdom of which every saved person will be a part So if you're here today and not saved, today's the day of salvation. The end is near. The end is at hand. Jesus could come tonight. And then there's no other chances. There's no other chances to confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So we are not naturalists, okay? Then has anyone ever heard of the book, or it might have not been a book, uh, might have been a novelette or maybe a short story by John Updike, entitled Pigeon Feathers. Anybody read that or heard of that? Well, I hadn't either, and, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm quoting from it. So I wanted to see if anybody had read this book or, or read anything by John Updike. Is anybody, any John Updike fans here? No, well, me neither. Okay, so we're on the same boat together on that. Uh, but apparently, Pigeon Feathers, I went, I, I didn't, you know, I wanted to at least know what the book was about, so I went and found the synopsis. And apparently, Pigeon Feathers is a story of a, a teenage boy named David uh, who is searching for answers about God and creation and death. And, it, and it's pretty gloomy. I'll give you an example of how gloomy it is. Here's, a, here's an excerpt. Without warning, David was visited by an exact vision of death. A long hole in the ground, no wider than your body, down which you were drawn while the white faces above you recede. You try to reach them, but your arms are pinned. You got the picture you're in this hole about the shape, about the width of your body, and you're going down, and you're like this, okay? And you're trying to reach up, but you can't. Your arms are pinned. Shovels pour dirt in your face. There you will be forever in an upright position, blind and silent, and in time no one will remember you, and you will never be called. As strata of rock shift, your fingers elongate, And your teeth are distended sideways on a great underground grimace, indistinguishable from a strip of chalk. And the earth 
tumbles on and the sun expires and unaltering darkness reigns where once there were stars. Now, I know that makes you want to rush out and buy a bunch of John Updike stuff <laughs> so you can be encouraged. Uh, pretty dismal, pretty dismal, right? According to the naturalist, we are all headed for an eternity of unaltering darkness. Well, our buddy Peter has a totally different view. He has a totally different view. He believes life has a God-given purpose and that everything, everything, every single thing is headed toward God's intended goal. He expressed it at the very beginning of his letter. Remember when we started studying this book in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not an unending darkness, not a hole the width of our body, but to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, an inheritance, not a uh, dark, no meaning ending, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, that's the guy I want to read. Move over, Mr. Updike. Give me the apostle Peter. Now, why does he believe this? Why does he write this? Because Peter saw the risen Christ. With his physical eyes. Listen, no one gets crucified upside down as Peter, according to church history and tradition, was for a lie or some type of hoax that you're trying to pull over the whole world and trying to cover it up. Nobody gets crucified upside down for that. He actually saw Jesus after Jesus had been dead and buried. He heard him speak. He heard him teach. He watched him eat. He dined with him after he had been brutally crucified for our sins. He saw him with his own eyes ascend to heaven to sit at God's right hand. And he heard with his own ears the angels say in Acts 1.11, This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I'm pretty sure Peter's experience with Jesus gave him supreme confidence that God's eternal plan is being worked out no matter what it looks like in our day and time or in his day and time. His day and time was a lot worse than ours, I would say, okay? No matter what it looks like, God's plan is being worked out. And everything, every single thing will end exactly the way God said it would. Christ's defeat of death in his resurrection, showed Peter very clearly that Jesus truly is king of everything. Everything. 
If he's king of death, he's king of everything. Because death, according to Scripture, is the final enemy. And he's already told us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, which we studied several weeks ago, that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Therefore, what Jesus says will happen will happen. Peter is 1,000% confident of that. And I pray this morning that you will be also, that nothing, nothing in this world, nothing in this uh, uh, season of, 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 of life that we are all going through, that our country is going through, that the church is going through, that, that nothing will shake you from the confidence that you have in Christ and that his plan is being worked out. That is my deep, earnest prayer for every one of you, that we would be a confident church. We would be a joyful church. No matter what is happening, no matter what is going on, no matter the threats or the, the, the attempts at intimidation, no matter what, we're standing on the rock. We're standing on sure and solid ground. We're standing on Jesus. Okay, so let's study this text together. I broke it into two major sections. Number one, section number one, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Section number two, therefore, because of that, in light of that, how should we live? Okay, let's do Jesus is coming first. In verse five, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Peter has just mentioned the final judgment. So he's kind of in that genre. He's a thought. He's in that arena, okay? And so in verse 7, he stays with that eschatological category with this statement, the end of all things is at hand. That that would include the final judgment. He's already mentioned that, so he's still kind of in that, on that subject. The end of all things is at hand. Now, what's he saying there? Well, beloved, that's just another way of saying the return of Jesus is at hand. Because that's exactly what James 5, 8 says, using the same wording. He says, you also be patient, James 5, 8, you also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Same phrase, is at hand, different subjects. The end is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. The coming of the Lord is at hand. In other words, the end of this age and the return of Christ are simultaneous events. They coincide. They happen at the same time. Okay, so what is Peter saying here when he says the end of all things is at hand? Tonight, tomorrow, next week. I mean, think about it now. Think with me. Work with me. Got to work now. He wrote this in the first century. It's been 2,000 years. Was he lying to us? Was he pulling our leg? Was he trying to scare us into, you know, obeying, scare us into doing the right thing, you know? Jesus is coming tomorrow. No, no he didn't say tomorrow. He said it's at hand. It's at hand. It's been 2,000 years. It might be 2,000 more or longer. But it might be tonight. Jesus said no one knows the day or hour, so don't try to figure it out. And if you don't read any books, that's how they figured it out. They're nuts. They're insane. They're, they're, they're 
contradicting Jesus. No one knows the day or the hour. This is why I like the, uh, the Lexham English Bible, kind of a new translation. Uh, it's on my uh, Logos software. I don't, I don't think it's in the book, bookstores or anything. But the LEB translation says this. The end of all things draws near. The end of all things draws near. Now, th- there can be no arguing with that statement. The Greek word used here means approaching. The end of all things is approaching. So no matter how far away it is, it's drawing near. It might be 10,000 years away. But tomorrow, it's closer than it was. Okay? It's drawing near. It is approaching. That's exactly what Romans 13, 11 says. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Be, quit being a lethargic Christian. It's time for you to wake from sleep. I, I'm tempted to preach on that verse right now because of the times we're living in. Beloved, we've got to wake from sleep. We cannot be lethargic. We cannot be apathetic. You know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Why? For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Can't argue with that. We're closer to the return of Jesus than we've ever been. Except for right now. Now we're closer. Now we're closer. Every second that ticks off the clock, we're closer. We're closer to the return of our Lord. What a day of rejoicing that will be. What we have here is what theologians call the doctrine of imminence. The doctrine of imminence. This is what Peter is talking about. The teaching that King Jesus could return at any moment. Any moment. In the next hour, you might not make it to lunch. For the Christian, that'd be a good thing. Because you'll be headed for a wedding supper. For the non-Christian, that's a bad thing. That's a terrible thing. That's the worst thing that could ever happen to you. It might be 100,000 years. It might, who knows? It could happen at any time. Chuck Swindle says it like this. So when the Bible speaks of the end as near or coming quickly, it refers to the suddenness and unexpectedness of the return of Christ. That is, Christ could come at any moment. It may be today. It may be thousands of years from now. Time's not an issue with God. God's not hung up on time. 2 Peter 3, 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. Even Moses spoke of this in the only psalm that he wrote, Psalm 90, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but, but as yesterday when it is past. Or as a watch in the night. God is no prisoner to time as we often are. God is not controlled by time as we are. No, no, no. He's above time. He's the creator of time. He lives in the eternal now. Bob Utley said this, quote, Let us remember that time is only significant to those involved in it. God is not slow, but also God is above time. And according to the Bible, the end has already begun. We're already in the end times. You do realize that, right? We are already in the last days. 
That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 1 when he starts his letter, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. In other words, the last days began at the incarnation of Jesus. The last days began when Jesus came to earth. Peter has already alluded to this concept in 1 Peter chapter 1. In the, in the first chapter of the letter we're, we're studying. He said he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest, made manifest, made real, made of... Uh, where we could physically, where people could physically see him. He was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So what's the point of all this? What's the point of all this? The the end of all things is at hand. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Uh, We're in the last days. It could be tonight. It could be 10,000 years. What's the point? The point is be ready. That's the point. Be ready. Be ready, young person. Be ready. Wake up. Be ready. Be ready, old church member who's not really a Christian. I'm not saying anybody here is like that. I'm just saying that's the way I was for 15 years. So I know they're out there. They might not be here this morning, but if you are, today's the day of salvation. Be ready. Fix your mind on things above. Regularly ponder our Lord's second advent and be ready. Listen to Jesus' words. Let's just let Jesus weigh in on this. Uh, He's the most important person to weigh in. Matthew chapter 24, uh, beginning at... Verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, the the guys had just asked him about this, about the end times, concerning that day or hour, no one knows, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. That's a mysterious verse, isn't it? Not not even Son, not even the Son, not even Jesus in his human nature knows. And is deified in his God nature. Yes, he knows. The Father knows. But in his human nature, no. Explain that, Butch. No, I can't. I'm sorry. I can't explain that. The bottom line is nobody knows. I've never understood fools trying to write books about the date of the coming of Jesus. I've never understood that. When Jesus clearly says, no one knows. Only the Father knows. He goes on. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of, the, Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving and marrying. They were living their lives. They were just sailing right along until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. And we're not talking about a pre-tribulation rapture here, okay? We don't have, go back and listen to our eschatological series back several summers ago. We talked about that. He's not talking about, one, one's going to be 
going to judgment and one's going to survive. Okay, just like the flood. Just like the flood. Therefore, stay awake. Be ready. Be ready. Make sure you're saved. Please, make sure you're saved. Stay awake. Be ready, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. I cannot emphasize that enough. I cannot speak with the earnestness that this statement requires on the human level. You must be ready. Be sure you are a Christian. Be sure you are born again. You must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Be ready. Be ready. Beloved, it's, it's not for us to know the time of Jesus' return. It's, 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 enough to know, it's enough to know that life is fleeting. Didn't we learn that from Ecclesiastes? Life is short. Life is short. Our time to glorify God with our lives is minuscule compared to eternity. The end of our own lives is drawing near. Faster than we realize. Can't believe I'm almost 70. Can't believe I can't shoot a basketball anymore, Tony. I was with my family on Memorial Day. We were out there playing gotcha. I said, oh, yeah, I'll play gotcha. And I took the ball and went, oh, God. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm dying, man. I'm dying. We're all dying. But we all are. Every person is dying. We're in the process of dying. Life is short. The end of life is drawing near. I, I, I wish I could express the importance of that more and better. Be ready. Church, be ready. Dear children, dear grandchildren, dear friends, be ready. Be ready. One, one final thought regarding this point before we move to the second half. What helps us to be ready for the Lord's return? What helps us? Several things could be, can answer that question. Several things could be mentioned. Prayer, Bible reading, Bible study. We could answer that a lot of ways, but I just want to emphasize one this morning for the sake of time. What helps us to be ready? Doing what we're doing right now. Gathering together like we're doing now. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And listen, all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, beloved, let's keep gathering. Let's keep gathering. You know, host a small group in your own home. We're going to talk about hospitality in just a minute. Keep gathering. Doesn't have to be a formal gathering like Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights. It can be informal gatherings among yourselves. Be together, especially all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need each other. We need each other. All right, how should we live then? Jesus is coming. 
We've talked about that. Could have talked a lot more about that. That's a, that's a major subject, beloved. Be ready for it. He's coming. Therefore, how should we live? How should we live? Okay. In light of Christ's imminent return and the uncertainty of it, but the certain end of the age, how then should believers live? Well, Peter answers that question, and in doing so, he gives us five vital signs of the Christian life. And as we study these, we will see the, the, the beautiful, profound, yet simple truth of what John MacArthur writes in his commentary. I love this. He says, the basic principles of the Christian life are simple and direct. In other words, you ain't got to be a theologian to do them. They're simple and direct. Since God has chosen humble, common people, people like us, to know his purpose and his will. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? Aren't you glad God came to the simple and to the foolish and to the weak, to the broken? Aren't you thankful for that? So let's look at these five vital signs of the Christian life. How should we live? Number one, according to verse 7, we should be disciplined and serious in our praying. We should be disciplined and serious in our praying. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Here we see the importance of prayer in the Christian life. We need to discipline ourselves to do it. Number one, that's where you start. Just do it. Just discipline yourself to do it. And we need to be serious about it. We need to be serious about it. The two Greek words here that the ESV translates self-controlled and sober-minded are very, very similar in meaning. They're almost synonyms. They carry the connotation of, of being sensible, of being reasonable, of being clear-headed, of having sober judgment and wisdom, to have control over one's passions, uh, to have control over one's desires and emotions, resulting in calmness and steadiness. A stable person. This mindset is fleshed out in many ways. We could make a long, long list. Let me give you a few examples. Number one, you don't, you don't panic when the unexpected occurs. You don't freak out when your candidate is not elected. You don't despair when all you hear in the news is bad or discouraging. You don't whine and moan when things don't go your way. You stay on the even keel. That means you're a boring person. You have emotional highs and lows. God created us emotions. We'll talk about emotions in just a minute. But, but you, you know God is sovereign. And you know he's in control. And you know he's, he's got everything in hand. He's not surprised about anything. He's not wringing his hands over anything. And we're his children and we have his characteristics. We don't panic. We keep pressing on. 
one step at a time, one day at a time, one moment at a time, with our eyes on Jesus, knowing that he could come back today, but living soberly and consistently with the very real possibility that you may be long dead when Jesus returns. And you don't forget to pray. You pray. Peter seems to be implying that possessing and demonstrating these qualities enable us to pray better. And uh, theologian and commentator Simon Kistemacher agrees with that because he writes, the characteristics of being clear-minded and self-controlled are essential for unhindered prayer. Now, wouldn't that make sense? If our thoughts and our our mindset is kind of under, under control, under the control of the Spirit. That would, enable, that would seem to enable us to pray better than if our mind is, you know, going all over the place. And, you know, you know, you've experienced that. Don't look at me so spiritual. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. Uh, it's interesting that this vital sign of discipline and sober praying is mentioned first. In other words, it's in a place of priority. It's first on the list. And Alistair Begg, I was, like, as I told you, I always checking to see what Pastor Alistair's saying about this uh, verse, these verses. And, and uh, he gives several reasons for this position of importance. I just want to pass on three to you. His list was longer, but I just want to highlight three. He says, prayer, he said, prayer is listed first because it's the principal expression of our relationship to God. Now think about that. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? If you love someone... You will want to spend time with them. If you really love someone, you'll want to speak with them and have them speak to you. You know, all what I urge you, maybe not 100% of the time, but a lot of the time, if not most of the time, pray with your Bible open. I want a two-way conversation. In fact, the older I get, I find I'm doing more listening than talking. But prayer is listed first because it's the principal expression of our relationship with God. If you have a strong relationship with someone, you will be spending time with them. Okay. Secondly, Beck said prayer is listed first because it's the principal area of attack on our Christian life. How many would say amen to that? How easy it is to find excuses not to pray. Well, this is really important, God. I, you know I got to do this, and you know I got to do this, and you know I got to do that. This is really important. I'm sure you understand. Prayer is the number one activity that the enemy does not want us to do. The number one activity. So Peter lists it first. It's the principal expression of our relationship to God. It's the principal area of attack. On our Christian life. And third, only one last one I'll mention. Prayer is listed first because it's too often viewed as supplemental and not foundational. It's too often viewed as supplemental. Something, you, an added option to your life. Oh, I'm a really good Christian because I pray. I'm still, a, I don't pray very much, but I'm still a Christian. But I, I've added this option. It's kind of like you add options to your car when you buy a car. You know, you have all these extra options. And prayer is often looked at as an extra added option. No. No, prayer is not supplemental. It's foundational. Prayer is not an added option. It's central. It's central to the Christian life. Central. 
Okay, so bottom line, bottom line, and we'll move on. A prayerless Christian is a contradiction in terms. I'm not sure that animal exists. A prayerless Christian is a contradiction in terms. So church, let's be disciplined and serious in our praying. Number two, according to verse 8, we should be consistent and earnest in our loving. We should be consistent and earnest in our loving. Above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Notice how the verse begins. Above all. Above all. Alternate translation. The most important thing of all. Yes, as we've just seen in the previous verse, serious and disciplined prayer is vital. But according to this verse, loving each other is even more vital. What does above all mean? Above all. Yeah, I I know I just mentioned prayer and how important that is. But above all, including what I just said about prayer, above all. One commentator said that love is the, the, the mother of all Christian duties, the mother of all Christian duties. And, and Paul agrees with Peter. Listen to Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. It, w- it would be natural that, that Paul would agree with Peter, right? They have the same person behind them writing it, right? So that would make sense, wouldn't it? Okay. Uh, verse 12, Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. And he starts listing all these important things. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Those are all important things, right? But look at 14. And above all these, above all these really, really important things, Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's exactly what Peter said. Prayer is really important. Prayer, you got to pray. You you really need to pray. Pray. Pray is so important. But above that, love each other. Love each other. I'm pretty sure Peter was listening When Jesus said, recorded in Matthew 24, 12, that most people's love will grow cold in the end times. Paul told Timothy that in the last days, people will be lovers of self. 2 Timothy 3, 2. Peter is saying, not us. Not us. Not Christians. Not real ones. Not real Christians. Our love won't grow cold. Not those who believe in Jesus and have experienced his love, his undeserved love. We will strive to love others as we love ourselves. By God's grace, we will keep loving earnestly. We will show our love for God by fervently loving each other and putting others first. I love the modifier here, earnestly. Earnestly love each other, earnestly. 
Um, keep loving one another earnestly. Earnestly. Not just keep loving one another. Keep loving one another, one another earnestly. It, it, it was an athletic term. The Greek word was often used in athletics. It, it indicated the, the striving of an athlete, the, the taut stretching of the muscle. The Greek word indicates a love marked by intense care and persistent effort. In other words, we will work at loving each other. That's what sets biblical love off from the world's counterfeit, from the satanic counterfeit that, 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 that has to have feelings and emotions and butterflies and goosebumps. No, we will work at loving each other. We will be diligent at loving each other. We will love continuously without ceasing. We will love eagerly and deeply and constantly. We will work at it no matter how we feel. Swindle, Chuck Swindle says, this has immediate application to our own day. In the midst of unjust treatment, persecution, and confusion in the present world, nothing helps strengthen and encourage believers more than mutual love and care for each other. There it is. When we love each other like this, we quickly forgive each other. Why? We'll read what he says. And above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. This is a quote from Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. In other words, biblical love doesn't hold grudges. Biblical love forgives. Biblical love overlooks offenses. Proverbs 18, 12, I think it is. This is not a mushy, goosebumpy love. This is a biblical love. Now, we know that ultimately the love of God demonstrated by the blood of Jesus ultimately covers our sins, right? Okay. If you're here today and not a Christian, you're not going to get saved if I come up to you and say, I'll love you no matter what. That's not going to save you. The point Peter is making is this. People who've experienced the saving love of Jesus will strive to love in a Christ-like way. Christ-like love is patient and forgiving toward our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are quick to forgive and quick to reconcile, and we don't nitpick each other's shortcomings and faults and quirks and all the things that I have. We don't do that. And we love in spite of shortcomings and failures and quirks. May God grant us the grace to truly love each other like this. Earnestly, earnestly, persistently, diligently, with a love that's eager to forgive. Let me elaborate briefly on one final thought under this point. Many will ask, well, what if I don't feel love toward a fellow believer? 
How can an emotion be instructed? Well, the question reveals your, if that would be a question, that, the question itself reveals your misunderstanding of biblical love. We can be instructed to love others, even mandated. In some scriptures, uh, the, the verb is in the imperative. Uh, it's not here, but there are other scriptures where the word love is in the imperative. It's a command. We can be instructed or commanded to love others by God because biblical love is not primarily an emotion. When emotions come with it, that's a blessing and a, a, an added benefit. But biblical love is not primarily an emotion. Listen, beloved, it is a decision of the will which leads to actions that work for the betterment of the person being loved. It's a decision of the will that says, I will to love you. I will, by an act of my will, I love you. Biblically, I will consider you more important than myself. I will not nitpick your weaknesses and shortcomings. I will serve you. I will put you before myself. And listen, beloved, listen, please listen. As the world around us seeks to cancel us as Christians or marginalize us, we are going to need this sin covering love from one another more than ever. More than ever. In other words, know who our, let's know who our enemies are, and it's not us. It ain't each other. Okay? Number three. Verse nine tells us we should be caring and joyful in our welcoming. We should be careful, uh, caring and joyful in our welcoming. Verse nine, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Here we see the joy of Christian fellowship, of being together, of sharing life. As often in Scripture, we see, the, once again, the corporate nature of the Christian life. We're not Lone Ranger Christians. We're not saved and put on an island or in a vacuum or in an isolation tube. We, we, we are to be together. The emphasis here in, the, in this word is on showing care to strangers or guests. So that leads me to ask the question, how do we welcome visitors to RCC? How do we welcome visitors to RCC? No member, let me, no member of RCC should come in and sit down in a chair and wait for people to come to you. No member of RCC should do that. Okay? They shouldn't. One, one Sunday, I... I uh, I, after preaching, I came home. I don't usually watch the services. Every now and then I do. And it's one of those Sundays uh, where Amy wasn't feeling well, like this morning, and she, she's home watching. And I came home and said, I just want you to watch, you know, this was back when we were doing like 15 minutes before the service. And, you know, you're, you're being watched. And people are walking around, you know. And she said, I want you to watch. And, and you t- I'm not going to tell you what to look for. You just tell me what you see and what you think. Okay, yeah, sure. And so I watched, and there, yeah, people are coming in, and, and, and Todd's getting ready, and, and somebody I didn't know came in and sat down about where McLean and Kenny are sitting, and they, she sat there, and she sat there, and she sat there, 
And she sat there, and nobody, five minutes went by. Finally, after about ten minutes, Katrina Barnes came over and welcomed her. Now, come on, beloved. (laughs) That ain't right. That ain't right. People walking by her, walking by her. If you're a man, let me just throw this out, take Lee, flush your chunk, get mad at me, I don't care. You know, if you're a member of RCC, when you come in, you want to, okay, I, but I got to get my seat. I got to get my seat. Well, come in, put your Bible down on your seat, and then turn around and stand up and watch people come in until the service starts. I just want to encourage you to do that. That's hospitality. That's hospitality. That's showing people you care about them. That's showing people you love them. That's show, you're glad they're there. That's not the preacher's job by himself. It's part, yeah, it's my job, but not alone. It's not Deborah Jones's job. She's wonderful at it, but don't be, oh, Deborah will get her. Well, she might not. She might be getting somebody else, okay? This is a together job. This is a team job. Hospitality, greeting strangers, welcoming strangers. Note, without grumbling. I love that Peter puts that in there. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Alternate translation, without complaining. What good is it to host a dinner if you're stewing in your heart that you're doing it? What good is it? Okay. Grumbling about providing hospitality detracts from the very beauty of hospitality. So show hospitality without Grumbling. Number four. Ooh, got to move. Verse 10 tells us that we should be selfless and responsible in our serving. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, notice this phrase. Please focus in on this. As each has received a gift. Each. Each. Everyone. Every believer has been gifted by God. Every one of you. When you were saved, you were gifted. It may be teaching. It may be serving. It may be hospitality. It may be administration. Now, when I say hospitality, that doesn't negate everybody else showing hospitality. Some people just have a special gift of hospitality and are really good at it. That doesn't eliminate all of us from being hospitable. Okay, I had to say that real quick because you're saying, oh, well, I don't have the gift of hospitality. Yeah, but the Bible tells you to be hospitable, okay? I don't know why I'm hammering that this morning, but anyway. So everybody's been gifted. It may be mercy. You may be especially just showing kindness and compassion and mercy. Doesn't mean we all shouldn't be merciful. We all need to be merciful. But God just gives some people. You know what I'm talking about? I don't want to delve into a study of spiritual gifts right here, but some people just... Gosh, you just have that mercy. They just, it just oozes out of them. We're all to be merciful and we're all to be kind. But some, you know, you get, it's a gift. It's a gift. And it, John MacArthur thinks because the word gift is singular here, his teaching is that we all have a unique combination, combination of several gifts, maybe even all of them. There's different lists in the Bible. No list is comprehensive, you know. We all are gifted, and and MacArthur thinks it's a combination of all the gifts where major gifts, you know, like mine hopefully would be teaching. That That would raise its head over the others. But we all have a unique, we've all been uniquely gifted for one purpose, to serve, to serve. Everyone has been gifted to serve. I like to think that Rockdale Community Church has 
Five elders, 11 deacons, and 200, whatever the number is, I don't count them, 200 servants, whatever the membership number is. 180 servants. I don't know what it is. I don't, I've never been a numbers person. But we have five elders, 11 deacons, and every member is a servant. Every member is a minister in that sense, in a servant sense, little m, minister. No one can say, no one, not a single person. Listen, listen to me. Don't leave me. I know I'm going over a little bit. Listen, please. No one can say, I have nothing to offer my church family. No one can say that. That contradicts scripture. Each one has been gifted. Each one has been gifted. Each one has received a gift. Every single one. Every single one. And each one of us, listen, each one of us is responsible to use it to serve one another. Not to entertain ourselves. As good stewards. Isn't that what he says? As each one, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. God's varied grace. He's talking about how he, 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 he graces every local church in a, in, ver, in a varied way where everybody, everybody has been uniquely gifted to come together and serve one another and to be a well-functioning unit, body. And everybody, every member of the body has something to give. No exclusions. No exemptions. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given, the, to each, each, each one, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. To not use our spiritual gift for the benefit of others in the body weakens the church family. It weakens the body. God did not put us here and, and, and baptize us into the body of, of Christ to sit and soak. He didn't place us in his church to simply be a name on a roll. A.W. Tozer says it pointedly. Brethren, this non-participation kind of faith is a strange parody on Bible Christianity. Men and women who say they are believers just cancel themselves out. Is it something we have learned from the sporting events? The great majority are spectators. They come and sit. Let me quickly say, that is not the majority case here at RCC, okay? But if there's one person, if there's one person that's on the fringe, that's the person I want to hear this. I mean, you, you go through our directory. You get a church directory, and you go through it, and you go through it, and you read those names of those people that you love, that you love earnestly, that you're stretching and straining and being diligent in loving them. And you're going through those names and you're saying, yeah, and she does that. And yeah, he does, does this. And this family does this. And, and there's not, there's very, very few. Very, very few. I, I won't hesitate to guess a number because I don't want anybody. Well, I do want some people thinking, is he talking about me? Because I am. 
but very, very few who are on the fringe. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for a serving church. Praise the Lord for a church that's obedient to this command as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. The word steward means household manager. Household manager. Owners of big mansions and big houses would have stewards or people that manage the household. Kind of like a head butler or whatever. The church is the household of God. We are household managers of God's church. We will, and listen, we will all give an account. We will all give an account for how we managed our spiritual gift that was given to us to serve the family of God. Therefore, beloved, don't waste the unique gift that God has given you. Use it to selflessly bless other people. Finally, number five, real quick, verse 11. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So what Peter's done there, he's broken down. You know, there's longer lists of gifts, especially in Paul's writing, especially 1 Corinthians. But Peter's broken it down into two major categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. Okay, so he's kind of broken it down into two two categories. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In other words, it all goes back to God. It's all going back to God. If you're speaking, you're speaking what God has already said. If you're serving, you're serving it with God's strength. So who gets the glory? Who gets the glory? Not us, not you, not me. God gets the glory. God gets the glory. And that's exactly what Peter's saying. In order that, purpose clause, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So fifth, we should be God-glorifying and Christ-centered in our ministry. In our ministering, ministering, okay? We should be God-glorifying and Christ-centered in our ministering. Beloved, this is why we minister. This is why we minister. This is why many of you teach Sunday school. This is why many of you work in the nursery. This is why many of you serve at Kids Rock. This is why I preach. This is why Deacon Deeks and an Elder Ells. This is why we serve. This is why we serve. In order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. When we are using our gift to serve others, the servant heart of Jesus is displayed and God is glorified. And beloved, we are fulfilling the purpose for which we were created and saved. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? Let your light shine before men. How do you shine your light? By using your gift. That God has given you. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's wrap it up. So, where are we headed? Where are we headed? End of verse 11. Last sentence of the, te- of, the, of the passage. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. We're headed to an eternal reign of Jesus, an eternal kingdom. To him be dominion, dominion, reign over all things. Because, listen, because Peter was with the risen Lord and was taught by him personally, he can state the Christian worldview concisely, directly, clearly, and with no apology. To him 
To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. David Helm says it like this, quote, In Christ, we see God's plan for both humanity and history. In him, God has seen fit to give the world a king, and to him, all authority has been given. All of history is heading not toward an unaltering reign of darkness. Remember that phrase in the introduction of the John Updike novelette, okay? All of history is not headed toward an unaltering reign of darkness, but toward the eternal reign of the risen and ascended Christ. This is what awaits every believer in Jesus. Not hopelessness, not darkness, not nothingness, but the dazzling beauty and radiance of the glory of God, the eternal, unending, beneficent dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect reign over his eternal kingdom forever. And our sharing life together as God's people, the glorious bride of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Oh, oh, how I pray all of you will be there with me. Oh, how I pray for that. And it all depends on your response to Jesus. One final question for your pondering this week. If somehow you, you could know, if, if, if I, it's totally, this ain't going to happen. Because the Bible tells us it ain't going to happen. But just for pondering's sake, if somehow you knew or could know, could find out that Jesus was coming back next Monday, June the 14th at 2 p.m. If you could know that, what would you do? What would you do? We got one week. What would you do? (laughs) Well, Peter's given us the answer, beloved. Peter Peter has given the people who are born again the answer. The believer in Jesus will continue to pray. Continue to love people, continue to show hospitality, continue to serve others, and live for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, help us to do that. Help us to do that. Whether you come back tomorrow or in 10,000 years, help us to keep praying diligently, soberly, seriously, in a disciplined way. Help us to keep loving each other earnestly with a love resulting in total unconditional forgiveness. Help us to keep showing kind hospitality to to people, especially people we don't know. Help us to keep using our gift that you have graciously given us as good stewards to serve others with that gift. And to live for the glory of your matchless name. Help us to do that, Father. And we'll trust you totally for the timing of your son's blessed return. 
In his name we pray. Amen. And amen.